The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to our Friday Space Show program, and I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. A couple of quick announcements. We're doing a 60-minute format with our guest today, so once again, if you want to get an email in to our guest, who I will introduce in just a minute, or a phone call, make sure you do it while we still have time on air to be talking with our guest and get a response for you. The second announcement is that on Sunday it's open line, but as I said last night, please remember that uh, the part of California that I'm in is under the potential for another Pacific Gas and Electric power shutoff, and our programming may end up being canceled if my area in Petaluma is blacked out, either from power or the Internet. Uh, If that happens, I will find a way to post information on our Space Show website and blog so that you will know that the show has been canceled and why. So um, if you go to tune in and and it's not there, and um, you'll see the announcement for it. Hopefully that won't happen, but we're under high wind alerts and high temperatures, and we don't have infrastructure that can withstand winds. So thank God we don't live in tornado or hurricane area. I guess we'd be without power a good portion of the year. But uh, hopefully it won't happen, but uh, just giving you a heads up that uh, it is a possibility. And uh, for today, our toll-free number is 1-866-687-7223. And remember, no call screeners, so just call, be patient. We'll get you up on air as quickly as possible. Email remains drspace at thespaceshow.com. And uh, you can also post on our blog. Uh, which is our website, thespaceshow.com, all the way to the far right for the upcoming show menu. This is the first show listed. Open that page, which is our blog page, and then scroll all the way down, and you'll see comments. As soon as you post your comment or question, I'll get a copy of it, and I can bring it up on air. A couple of other things I want to call your attention to, and that is to remember that we are a listener-supported program. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. Our parent is one giantleapfoundation.org. As a 501c3, as a 501c3 nonprofit, excuse me there. Um, if you are a federal U.S. taxpayer, you do get a tax deduction for your gift, and the same is true if you're a California taxpayer. So uh, please do check us out and do know that it is your support that keeps us on the air and brings you the great programming and the blog and the chance to interact with our guests that you are used to. We're coming in toward the end of the year, and we're going to be starting our annual campaign in a week or two. And um, this is the funding that we use to take us through the rest of this year and next year. So hopefully you'll be very supportive of us. We look forward to that. And if you have any questions about funding or our nonprofit status, don't hesitate to contact me at uh, the Dr. Space at thespaceshow.com. Uh, on our homepage, you'll see the PayPal link, and that's how you can donate to us electronically. If you open the PayPal link, you will also see how to send us a check to onegiantleapfoundation.org and um, the mailing address for doing that. And then uh, keep in mind also that Amazon supports nonprofits and say what you want about Amazon, but they really do have great nonprofit supporting programs. We're part of two of them. And if you click on the big Amazon link in the center of our homepage, it'll take you to our Amazon page. And either one of the programs described there, what Amazon does is donate a portion of your purchase price to one giant leap. So it's a great and easy way for you to support the space show, 
by just doing what you normally do with Amazon, as long as that means you're buying something from Amazon. <laughs> so uh, we thank Amazon for that support. And, and again, it's uh, a great organization for supporting nonprofits. Uh, we do also have a sponsor, so do remember that uh, our sponsors get the banner ad running across our homepage. <clears throat> you can change your banner ad as often as you like. And on the shorter segments, like today, we give a shout-out to our sponsors. On the longer segments, we read the sponsor messages. So for today, since we're doing the 60-minute format, I want to thank Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, AIAA, Moonwards, the Space Development Network, Celestis, the National Space Society, and the Integrated Space Plan without their great sponsorship and support, uh, we would not be bringing you the Space Show program. So thank you very much for supporting us. Those of you who are planning on supporting us, we certainly appreciate your uh, considering that and hope you follow through. Uh, listeners, I'm happy to bring to the show for the very first time Don Pickering. He is the CEO of OLIS, O-L-I-S, Robotics, and um, this is an AI-driven remote robotics software company. They're headquartered out of Seattle. An enterprise technology pioneer, Pickering has launched and developed five tech startups, and he brings extensive experience in software application development analytics, geospatial big data, and unmanned systems. And for those of you that heard our Space Architect show last night, you heard our guest talk about the kind of uh, free space habitats that she has conceptually designed, but also noted that she wasn't they weren't ready yet, they're not prime time. And some of the reasons why we're not prime time is that a lot of the AI and robotics is not there yet for the kind of space development and construction and management that is needed. Don, welcome to the Space Show. It's great to have you on board. And how about giving us, as we start out, an introduction to what your company does, the software you do, and how you got into space from some of the previous disciplines you were involved in. Yeah, so thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, Olus Robotics started five years ago. Um, we spun out of the Applied Physics Lab, which is the Navy-affiliated lab at the University of Washington, and also the Electrical Engineering Department. And um, our roots were of our technology was in surgical robotics. So we were applying sensors and algorithms to optimize surgery um, in the research lab. And the company got its start really around um, helping to solve a problem for the U.S. Navy. Um, the Navy has been sort of mandated to clean up all their test ranges of bombs and ordnance, and they use divers to do that work primarily. And so they um, sent out an RFP looking for technology to help robots um, sort of develop the, both the classification and the precision capabilities to take over that work. So we got a grant from the Navy, pulled the intellectual property out of the University of Washington, launched the company, um, and got to work on, on working on that, that problem. Um, ultimately then realized that the technology that we had developed was uh, valuable and useful in other sectors, and um, that we started on the subsea, uh, when subsea. So we have developed and actually commercialized the controller and software to bring um, AI to underwater manipulators and uh, robots. They're called ROVs or remotely operated vehicles. There's um, 1,500 robots deployed. They're about $5 million a piece. So it's very a lot of infrastructure and robots out there that have been building and maintaining infrastructure for, for 20 years. But they've been doing it mostly manually. So, um, you know, we've that's really where we got our start and where most of our work has been. Um, our Sort of foray into space started about two and a half years ago when NASA had um, uh, sort of picked up on what we developed underwater and some unique capabilities that we had around working at extreme distances from the robot and, and latency, which we can get into in a bit. And so we um, won uh, two grants to put our software on the Robonaut, which is a humanoid robot, um, and then have since um, gone on to um, two, two additional contracts uh, with a partner for a robot uh, destined for the space station, and then most recently this Maxar 
contract to be on the lunar lander. Um, so, you know, space has really been kind of an exciting area for us and, and one that um, I think we really can push the, the envelope in terms of, of latency and challenges. Um, and then the, we're now sort of using the technology for land-based applications for data centers, remote industrial robots, and so forth. But it's the same software um, and, and all of the applications. The difference is the drivers that we write to have it work with the, with the given hardware. So we have the same software running 14 different types of robots right now. And ultimately, um, you know, the software is a lot like a brain. So it does, you know, real-time 3D mapping and modeling. Um, with the machine learning, we can uh, identify and differentiate objects, and then we use that information for assistive capabilities and eventual autonomy. What do the underwater robots do that cost $5 million each? So the, the robots basically build and maintain um, oil rigs, offshore wind turbines, electrical grids for, for turbines and offshore networks. Um, and so, yeah, they've... They've, they're about the size of an SUV, um, and they're they're quite expensive to run because you have people on ships and you know crews, and they're they're you have to be tethered to them with fiber optic cables. And so, um, yeah, it's it, it's really interesting that there's you know billions of dollars of robots deployed and and. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that they're they're out there working every day. So they're not wireless. You have to tether them to the to the operating uh, center. Right. Yeah. So we can't. There, you can do wireless at short distances at subsea, but it's very low data rates. So you tend to have tethers. Um, or you you do have tethers. Um, now there is a big movement subsea, and this is also sort of very relevant to space where rather than um, be connected to the robot via tether, the idea is to have resident systems where you actually house or garage a robot on a oil rig or a wind turbine um, and then operate it from ashore, um, which then introduces latency. And so that's where we've developed technology to um, allow you to... Um, motion compensate and you know, do things basically at the edge or at the robot um, that would be very difficult to do if, if you're if you have latency or lag and, and um, trying to do it manually so um, so that industry is really changing um, offshore wind has been a big sort of thrust for that change because you the sheer number of assets and the geographic spread makes it hard to service those with ship-based support so um, but that technology is 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 really the same technology. It's just at greater distances that we need for space operations, where we're you know running or directing uh, robotic programs from ground, um, or even from um, uh, you know an on uh, in orbit platform to a surface. Um, so, can you direct platforms on the moon? From Earth, or do you, do you have to be on an on-orbit place that's closer to the center of the robot? Well, and, and if, um, the answer is you could do both. It's just the greater the greater proximity you, the closer proximity you have to the actual robot, then the easier things get. So ultimately, I think um, you know we we do see you know we do see a lot of the loot the lunar operations, once we get to actually building infrastructure on the surface, I think we'll be directed from, um, you know, orbit, orbital-based platforms on the moon uh, rather than directed from ground. But um, even here, just more locally, you know, what we've, we've seen applications where being able to direct robotics from ground rather on the space station rather than, you know, using astronauts on the space station is sort of a big relief in terms of... Um, you know, uh, managing sort of the budgets of astronauts' time and so forth. And so I think, you know, we're sort of starting with the space station and doing more from Earth on the space station before we go to the moon. And then I think you'll see sort of moon programs directed from orbit, but then also us refining and developing the capabilities to run Earth to to moon operations as well. Um, You have a 
an initial email that has come in from Todd in San Diego, California. And he says, when you talk about latency, uh, let's apply it to space. If you were on an on-orbit platform, what was would be the usual latency to the moon? And if you're trying to direct it from Earth, what would be the latency factor? You know, um, I think that the the Earth to moon uh, latency factor would be in the matter of you know upwards of of you know, and I, I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but in the ten to fifteen second range. Um, and then I think if you're you're talking, you know, sub. You know, very, very fast. If you're sort of there in close proximity to it, it might be, you know, half a second delay or something like that if you're doing an uh, orbit to, to base operation. But again, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure of those numbers. Those are just approximate estimates. That's a big difference, though, from an orbiting platform than from Earth. Well, and then when you get to Mars, it's even, you know, you're talking minutes. Um, you know, depending on the positions, it can be upwards of 15 minutes. So that's why, you know, ultimately pushing more um, capability to the robot to do more work sort of at the edge without, you know, over time with less human involvement is in everybody's interest. So uh, I would imagine that the latency includes the feedback that the commands are being carried out correctly or is that just one direction so yeah there is a um, there is a verific there is a verification right and so ultimately again it depends on I think the distance that you have from the work being done as to how that is set up so you know that verification even the verification might happen on the edge right meaning the you know, right now, a human might just sort of wait and see if something is, if an action is done completely or, um, and then, uh, and then verify that. And then ultimately, though, for working at greater distances, that might all be sort of imputed to the work that's being done. So it's really dependent on how far it is. So, um, and this is one where, like, a good analogy here is, is driverless cars, right? We didn't, Autonomous vehicles sort of started with cruise control and it's, it's primitive task assistance, right? Where you, um, you, 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 you do, we're starting with technology that makes the job easier for pilots, um, and assists them in operations. And then at some point we went from cruise control to dynamic cruise control or park assist to where it actually parks your car for you. And so as we can safely um, build technology to push more autonomy at the edge, we'll do so, but it's only as we can confidently and safely do that. And sort of our thesis is that's how we'll ultimately bridge to autonomy. Um, and I think if you're just gunning for autonomy from the outset, you can, you know, when you fail, it's mission failure, and that's not that's not an option. And, and so ultimately... Um, you know, what we're trying to do is bridge that gap from manual operations to, to autonomy, but on a step-by-step basis. Um, Joan is in Denver, Colorado, with an email for you, and she said she you mentioned earlier your work in, in surgical robots. So I'm wondering if on a lunar habitat one could do robotic surgery in an emergency directed by doctors here on Earth, or would that long latency factor stop you from doing robotic surgery? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, a good question. I, I, think, um, I think it's certainly possible. You know, I, one of the, so the work that our founder did, um, and, and just uh, to, as, as a kind of a qualifier here, I'm, I'm not an engineer, and I'm, I'm sort of on the business end of the business, but I certainly know enough about uh, technology here to, to be dangerous. Um, but our founder had developed, um, you know, technology uh, that uh, surgical robotics right now is a fully manual exercise. So you have to, um, it's, a, it's an analog and manual exercise, much like a lot of other remote robotics or, or um, mobile robotics at this point. And our founder took a, a 3D sensor and image if you're trying to suture a beating heart um, 
you would have to time the up and down of the heart beating with the manipulators and then execute a suture. And he took a 3D image in real time of a beating heart and using the coordinates of that heart as it's moving up and down, use that to inform manipulators that had force feedback so that you could, surgery could be hands off and the timing of the up and down would happen on its own with the heart as it's beating. So now a surgeon would just do a suture, right? And it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and what and that's very much the same foundation of the technology we use to for to hold uh, a robot steady to an object in motion, right? It and so the the technology can absolutely be extended to different applications, and I think you know it's, that that's not something that you would want to have as sort of a uniform practice, but it certainly is is and will be possible at some point to do that. Um, I know that there's people working on and there's interest as well for, you know, drones, you know, for example, in either wilderness or battlefield applications that could tend to, you know, wounded soldiers or individuals and um, check vitals, tie tourniquets, and it's possible to even at some point do, you know, suture or something like that. And, you know, so I think, um, yeah, I, I do think that is that is possible. It's not something that we're going to see anytime soon, but um, but it, it absolutely will be possible in the, in the coming years. Our space architect guest last night said that we're not yet ready uh, for the kind of um, construction in orbit and uh, advancements in habitats other than the way the ISS is built, and the architects sort of frown on that and think that they can design and do much better for people. But we're, she says we're not there yet, um, but we're making advances toward having those capabilities. W- would you concur that uh, we're not yet at the robotic and AI level for advanced space construction, be that in free space or maybe on the surface of the moon where you could really go uh, design crazy and, and actually build design uh, in space uh, with engineering and medical needs in mind and, and things like that, which are not the way the ISS was built, for example. Yeah, I so I participated in a, in a moon-based summit a couple of years ago, and, and we spent several days um, sort of working through all the, ch- the challenges and aspects that we would have in actually building a, a sustained manned moon base. And um, and there's a lot of different approaches that you can imagine on um, where and how to build the habitats. And um, I think that that you know, as I mentioned, sort of we're building the component technology that that to get us there. So you know, the first step is is moving from 2D to 3D in real time, um, being able to introduce task automation, being able to work at greater and greater distances. I think. Um, I, I think we're really, you know, the, the hardware, um, there are some advances in hardware that we'll need to see in terms of processing power and software. We're getting there. It's, it's, we're making huge strides. Um, I think people, um, w- wouldn't have thought, you know, three years ago that what we, what we're doing right now is possible. Um, but you know, that's to go from where we are now to, um, you know, building that type of infrastructure is, is going to take, you know, quite a bit of time and many steps and iterative and iterations in the technology to get there. I think one of the, sorry. No, I was going to ask, what do you mean by lots of time? Or are we talking five years, 10 years? What, what do you think? Oh, no, that... I think, I think, um, no, I think within, within five years, um, that, 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 it's a function of intention and funding. <laughs> you know, so I think the 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 technology and the, the technology framework is there, and I think it's it's a we have to just you know. So we focus really on building the software at OLS. We only hardware we've developed is a controller, which is sort of how we deliver the software. And and so the, a lot of, um, but I think sort of co collaborating on the hardware side so that we can begin to actually develop hardware that takes advantage of software capabilities and vice versa is something, is something that will be necessary for that to work, right? And um, I think one of the things that that is clear is that 
when we get to a place where we're actually building that type of infrastructure, you're talking about, you know, building landing pads out of regulate and building for, uh, so you're not spreading dust every time you're landing on the, on the moon to, to the habitats that, you know, building roads for transport, building obviously the habitats themselves and the other life support systems and infrastructure. And there's 99% of the work that's going to be done in space will be done robotically. And, and, and we're not talking about single robots. These are, you will have, um, theaters of robots working. It might be, you know, 15, 20 different types of robots that, that will be working. And so I think one of the things that is unique about what we've built is it's basically like a high level operating system that can be run across hardware. So we can, we can literally, um, interface this technology and use it to have a common control environment, common control system for the breadth of robots that might be run. And so but what they all share is the, the, a real-time updated 3D model, right, of, of a universal model of that work environment. So I think, you know, moving from, you know, sort of a, the step is moving from manual control to assistive control, task automation, um, to, um, and then getting better at pushing at greater and greater distances and then eventually developing the command and control center so you can start to look at robots as a, as a theater, um, you know, will, will take four or five years to build all, all of those capabilities out. But, but I, I would also add, though, what we're doing on land is very much, and underwater, is, is it's, um, you know, when we make an advancement at refining, you know, 3D modeling on shore, on on land, it's it's the same technology that helps us get there on, on space as well. So it's you know we are kind of moving forward in all those aspects. Do you have a lot of competition, or is are you involved in some kind of a technology race against company B, C, and D, or companies from uh, another country, Japan, for example, or China? So um, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, so first, I'll kind of tackle the second part of that first, which is, you know, I think something that, that the United States is still very, very strong and, and very much a leader on the software, um, in the software spectrum and software development. And so you then, you know, and I say this delicately, so I think we have an edge there um, and also have a very good talent pool to draw from on the software side. Now, from a hardware perspective, um, Japan and a sensor perspective, you know, Japan, Germany, and other countries um, have have uh, have really out, outpaced the United States in many ways. And so um, I think that there's still a bit of, of an edge that we have relative to AI and the software, although you know, that there's certainly, I know China has very, very concerted efforts in, in developing that. Um, it, with respect to kind of our, our company and, and what we're doing, we haven't, um, we haven't seen really direct competition. I, I think the legacy of robotics there's such, is twofold. One is there's a very strong factory orientation to robotics, which is just a different way of doing things. So you, you're the robots in one place. You program the world around it. Um, it takes quite a bit of work to train that robot to do something. If that robot moves, then you need to reprogram it. And so, having sort of come from the background that we have, where you're, we developed our software for robots that are free flying underwater, um, means that you know we calibrate dynamically. We sort of calculate where we are as part of that 3D model. Um, and a lot of our technology is built to optimize with that. And that's just a different perspective that has given us a, a really unique um, uh, advantage that as we've come into space and land-based systems, you know, we've developed a lot of the core component technology necessary to, to work in that, in that mobile remote environment um, because of our roots. And so, we 
Um, and kind of the other thing is that the late with as the legacy of the factory component is that there has been a, a bias towards vertically integrating technology. So robot companies will try and build all their own software or just use ROS, which is an open source control environment. But it, but they are so focused on building the robot that the software really ultimately lagged in kind of pushing what was capable with these robots. So we've been really focused on building hardware. The software has really been lagging, and it's been very oriented towards, you know, much more oriented towards the factory. And so you kind of take all this in combination, and we sort of find ourselves in a place where we have um, very kind of unique technology but has broad application, and, and that's a, it's a good place to be in. So we're, we're working with, you know, large companies that um, and that that uh, I think see a lot of value in, in what we have, but um, don't have a lot of alternatives to turn to. And to try and build it on their own um, is, you know, takes time and money and, and is not easy to do. Um, there's a general scarcity also of talent that can do this type of work. And the driverless car industry has, has really sucked up a lot of that talent as well. So, um, Inter- Interesting. Uh, R- Ralph uh, has a question with you. For you, and he's in New Orleans. And uh, listeners still love to get you to use the telephone. I know many of you are listening at work, but uh, the phone number one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Ralph says, "Are you involved with NASA in designing any of the software or working with any of the robots that will be used in either building and manufacturing the gateway?" or any of the facilities or services. I think you mentioned the, a lunar lander. I'm assuming that implies coming from the gateway, right? Right. Yeah, so that's that's our um, that's a part of that, that MaxR program to be to run the sampler arm on the the that lander. Um, and that's an arm that's been repurposed um, from the uh, two Mars rovers. So um, but no, other than that, we're not working on the gateway. We would certainly like to. It's, um, you know, but uh, we're just starting on the manipulator side first. Um, but remote construction is something that we're very interested in, and we hope to get there with NASA. Um, is remote construction advancing, uh, or are we pretty primitive with it? What What is your assessment of it? So I, we are still... Quite early um, with that, I think you know when we look at um, you know it's it's uh, there's been so much effort right now in space of just sort of getting the launch piece straight, right? That I think that kind of moving to that next stage of where we're built, actually building infrastructure in space is sort of um, is secondary right now, and so you know it's, so there's. Um, so I, I think that there's definitely room, you know, that, that, that is to sort of yet to come. Um, but when, you know, it's, it's also, but it is a critical component of, of the programs that the, the reality is, is if it's the lunar gateway or ultimately when we go to Mars, we're going to be, need to be building infrastructure in space and, you know, robotics will be critical in, in doing that. Um, so yeah, that's. Um, have you, I'm just curious. Have you looked at what the cost of um, getting to to space and different places might be using, say, a SpaceX rocket with reusability? Do the cost uh, seem to be barriers to anything that you're doing? The cost of space access, or do you do you think that's come down enough to where it it's no longer a roadblock or a barrier, but but maybe a more minor challenge. Yeah, so because we're software only, we tend to ride on, you know, so we'll, we'll basically, uh, the robots that we're going on to um, aren't sort of our, we're ultimately not, not owning or launching or, you know, leveraging those. We're basically just riding on it. So it's not so much of an issue that something that we have to deal with. I would say the cost of of transport and that the um, the reusability and, and the decreasing cost of what is is a key component of what's opening up the commercialization of space and the accessibility of space. So that has been a massive change 
that we've seen, I think, in the last five years. It's come down by an order of magnitude, and it's going to go down more. Um, and ultimately, that that will is basically paving the way for um, you know opening up the uh, commercialization of space. Um, what about applications for space tourism destinations? Um, have you ever been approached by uh, any companies regarding your software or working with uh, robotics, for example, for a space hotel or, you know, doing something with a habitat for a space hotel? Because I'm doing shows with people who claim they're going to have orbiting space hotels uh, around the moon or, or maybe in a different orbit in five years. I mean, that's really not a very long time. Yeah, that 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 is a surprising time. I know we haven't uh, talked to anybody. Um, at least I haven't personally, and maybe other folks on our team have, but nothing that's been, um, you know, that, that's sort of pending or or any sort of serious conversations. Yeah. Um, interesting. I, I wonder if they're thinking in software terms yet or. Uh, the, the one company that I, I'm thinking of called the Gateway Foundation uh, wants to actually build a von Braun space station, uh, you know, in a, in a lunar orbit um, and not too far into the distant, in, into the future either. So uh, he wants to start an on-orbit construction company to do this. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, how they're going to do that and if this is an example of vertical integration or – They've got options, or they haven't thought about it, or you're next on the list to call. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's interesting. You know, when you look at, I mean, it's uh, not so much on the space tourism side, but you know, companies like um, Blue Origin and SpaceX, and we're not working with either company yet. Um, you know, they. They, there's very different intentions between them in terms of Elon Musk with, with the settlement of Mars and then and uh, Jeff Bezos with kind of the intent of moving heavy manufacturing and industries to space. But the, robotics is a critical is a critical component of of all of that work, right? If it's if it's settlement of Mars or moving manufacturing to space or space tourism or what have you, so I, you know it's it's um, but I, I think, as I said, that getting the launch component down first is, seems to really be priority. And so, you know, we're not as engaged on that on the commercial side yet as we have been really on the on the um, as we have been with the kind of space station, NASA, more you know, shorter term work. Although, you know, that that is that is that is changing some, and, and um, you know, we're finding. More interest in pull, like particularly in like satellite servicing and um, you know areas like that. So, but it's going to take some time. Timing that commercial market for space is challenging, and it, it's it's hard to pin down. And I think you know there is a lot of um, sort of work that NASA is doing, but NASA is also going to be pushing that work to you know commercial partners. Um, you know, partially for innovation, but partially also for cost efficiency. And, um, you know, it's going to take some time for that to happen. But I really see, you know, us making that transition from launch into kind of the um, uh, more of the infrastructure building and then and then the application side of the business, which which is where things will get really interesting. Is your company private or public if people wanted to take a flyer on, on the future in this kind of an industry? Uh, is your company listed? Can they buy shares in it? No, we're a private company, you know. So, um, yeah, we're, no, we're not, not public and not planning on going on public anytime soon. Um, I guess many people may be saying too bad about that. <laughs> Um, it, uh, it sounds like you have your, your fingers on the on where the future is going, so uh, that might be interesting. Um, I have uh, Jane in Oklahoma City, and, and she says, David, I'm at, at work, so I'm not using the phone. But what I want to know is if um, 
your guest has any concerns about a regulatory market evolving and do um, government regulations scare you? Are you oblivious to them? Do you think that they are a risk factor? How do you assess the likelihood going forward over the next couple of years of government regulations that don't exist today? So I'm, I'm not um, I, I'm not one that tends to be opposed to government regulation unless there's a um, you know it's, it, oftentimes there's sort of uh, re- regulation from a perspective of safety right and um, and we see that in the oil and gas industry for example around restrictions on types of electronics you can use on platforms so that they don't produce sparks and things like that um, but I I think that that um, a lot of the regulation is sort of done on the hardware side and on the software side. It's really around kind of the, the testing and, and the safety aspects of it. We are very focused on keeping the human in con- control, so with sort of the hand on the on the controls, um, so that we can abort things if, if things aren't right and appropriate. And there's a lot of safety mechanisms that we can actually build into the software that isn't available with your under manual control as well. So, um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not too concerned about that. Although, you know, when you're talking to government, you never know what, what's going to happen. I, I think, um, and I think that there should be some regulation. I, I think, you know, that it, then, you know, I've sort of taken the position and mandated that, you know, this, our technology be used, um, for for positive to do positive work and you know and and refuse to do things and work on things that are detrimental to the environment or human health or safety and um, and I you know, I'm, I'm not and I think it's important that we you know, developing technologies think about the consequences of what we're building and 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 sort of take that responsibility. Ourselves, but also I think it helps the policymakers to understand, you know, as we develop more and more capabilities, um, how to how to manage those capabilities responsibly. So, so you you sound as if you're a responsible CEO and a responsible company. How do you find the industry you're in? Um, is it similar to what you're talking about now, or is it pretty different? I think it's it's very similar. I mean, it's um, you know certainly like working with in the oil and gas industry, they're incredibly safety oriented, um, and much more so than any other business I've ever worked in. I mean, you don't have a meeting with oil and gas uh, executives without going through a five minute um, safety you know briefing on where the exits are, what will happen in the case of a fire, and this is, could be in a, a, a business meeting in a conference room. Um, and so I think that there is sort of a focus on safety, you know, across the board, particularly in areas where there's consequences. <laughs> um, so it's, it's much more so than, than people, kind of people realize. And, and some of that's been through hard lessons, right? Um, that, that they've had to develop a, a culture of safety, um, uh, because, um, you know, the consequences of it are great. I think, you know, the opportunity with this technology is to to go to take human capability where places where human can't go. So, like to to extend our reach and our ability to build things in places where we can't be, or to handle and work with material that humans shouldn't be around. So, and that's one of you know, and and you know, we're not working in the nuclear realm, but. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of nuclear power plants that are going to be decommissioned in the coming years. And so how, you know, looking at how we can use technology to do that safely and responsibly as well, sort of uh, while managing human safety is, you know, it's a real opportunity. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I tend to be an optimist, but I do I do think a lot about, um, you know, um, but you know, sort of that that aspect, that aspect of, of ethics and um, with it as well. So, but yeah, I, we and we haven't been asked to do anything nefariously either. And you know, 
Um, I've got a, uh, email again from Bill in Memphis and he says, uh, I'm not a, a software person by any means, but I'm, I'm really curious. I think the brunt of how things work in space is probably on the hardware side, but I'm curious if you have to do anything special with software so that it works in a space environment, microgravity, really cold weather, uh, weather's probably not an issue, cold temperatures, I'll say that. Uh, what do you have to do to make software work? For example, I don't think the software I buy and use in my office would probably work in a space environment. I don't think it would function, um, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Do you do anything with software to get it to work in a space environment? Yeah, so it's, it's, that it is actually more on the hardware side and on the kind of the, um, foundational control that that, that is, uh, where that's resolved. So, and yes, it is different sort of working in microgravity environments. Um, obviously in the moon, the temperature swings, um, and the, you know, the, the, uh, the t- temperature drops on the lunar night is, is huge. Um, hundreds and hundreds of degrees. And then ultimately, you've got um, radiation hardening as well. But fortunately, those aren't really our problem. Um, you know, we just sort of, uh, uh, you know, power, I'd say the biggest issue that we would face might be power constraints. Um, and, and that's just something we would have to, to work through with our hardware partners. Um, so... Really, the burden of getting things to work in space falls on the hardware side. Yeah, primarily, yeah. Uh, so that means my audio software and QuickBooks and stuff would work if the hardware using it could work. Well, I, I, I would, th- I would think so. Yeah, but don't don't hold me to that if, <laughs> if you try that. <laughs> um. No, I, I I don't see any any chance of me trying that. I don't I don't know if anybody's put QuickBooks or SoundForge or anything up in space, but uh, maybe, maybe that'll be uh, forthcoming. So, where do you see uh, Olus and uh, and robotics in in five years? Do you do you think we'll be revolutionized, or do you think we'll have uh, uh, a good evolutionary track going, but but not revolutionary? Um, I, I I do think that you know we're on the cusp of um, of some real significant changes. So I mean, obviously, you know, you don't have to look far to hear and see people talking about the growth of robotics. And I think um, that you know when you look at mobile robots and remote robots as part of that, that's sort of kind of projected to be one of the biggest growth areas in robotics. Um, and so, you know, I think. Um, as I mentioned, sort of, we have a sort of a, a step-by-step process here. As we're rolling out our technology, we can drive value for companies now. But I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where we're at in five years when we are you know, fully integrated the machine learning capabilities, um, the uh, task automation. Um, and, you know, the ability and then the kind of the control ops side where, you know, I can envision, you know, five years from now that we'll have partners and customers that have, you know, a robotic control room and can run, you know, their, their robotic operations from, you know, a centralized location and, and, um, you know, dispatch robots to do routine inspection and maintenance on assets. And I, you know, if that's in um, unmanned LNG platforms or offshore wind turbines or, um, you know, chemical plants and um, or on the moon, you know, that, that's something that I, you know, I, I certainly um, I look forward to seeing and hopefully being a part of. I think our company definitely has a, is in a, has a unique position right now and, um, you know, it's Timing is is one of the hardest things to control when you're building businesses and starting them. But it it's um, you know I think we find in a place right now where we're at the front side of and at an inflection point where we're going to see some really significant and change and and um, 
and it's really, really exciting to, to be part of that. It's very similar to like, you know, when I started in the internet business in 1995 and was able to sort of see the growth through, through that. It was, it was just a, amazing to see that that impact that that's had on society. And I think robotics is, is going to be a, a major wave for us. And, um, yeah, it's, it, I'm, I'm very optimistic about it. Uh, here's another question, and listeners, we're coming up on the, on the end of an hour hour program. So, if you do want to get a call in, this is a reminder: one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Email remains space at spaceshow dot com. So, Hal is in Houston, and he says uh, one uh, can't really turn on the television or turn around anymore without seeing some kind of program or mention or reading a magazine article on job and labor displacement because of AI and robotics. Do you think this is an issue for space manufacturing and the way robotics and AI are going to be used in space in the future? Is job displacement an issue, or would we not be doing this with humans anyway so we either do it with robots or not at all? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's sort of the latter aspect there. I, I don't think that we would be having a lot of humans there doing that work and, and certainly, um, you, you, even, even if you did, you'd need robots to build the infrastructure for the humans to ultimately be there. So the type of robotics we're engaged in is not about replacing jobs necessarily. It's, it's about transitioning from, you know, one job of being dangerous and um, or not possible to actually creating a job to do something that now becomes possible or that is, is in, a, in a safe location, a safe environment. Um, and we're also able to sort of remove geography out of the equation. So you don't, I think we can begin to eliminate the need for people to travel long distances or specialists to, to you know, tend to, to specific hardware tasks. And so um, now ultimately in time there will be, I think there's, when we move from a from a one-to-one relationship to a robot to a, a one-to-many, to you know, they're, they're at that point, you know, several years down the road, there might be some displacement. But I think ultimately, you know, when that there will just be new jobs that get created. And I think you look at, you know, I think when um, the Industrial Revolution happened everybody you know sort of wondered what was going to happen to everybody and you know it's like I heard a great interview recently where a person said think about a hundred years ago how many of our jobs existed of what what we do right now my job certainly didn't exist and your job didn't exist either and so you know there's there's things will just change and will be will be different but there'll be new opportunities that will be created with the capabilities as they develop um if Hal had asked you this question but uh, had uh, confined it to offshore oil industry, for example, would you give the same answer? Are jobs being displaced by robotics in the oil industry, or are those such hazardous, dangerous jobs that they probably wouldn't be done either? So uh, the robots that are being used underwater um, are at operating at depth that even that commercial divers can't go to. So most of that work, a good majority of that work is, is, is too deep for divers. There will be, as we see sort of more uh, dexterous manipulation occur um, on smaller vehicles, we'll start to see some divers be displaced, but, um, but there'll still be people running that robot. So it's, it's just the job will change. I think in time where we will start to see some changes is when, as we move to more autonomous ships and unmanned platforms or minimally manned and unmanned platforms, um, is that, you know, we'll see uh, jobs that were either on a boat or on a platform move ashore. Um, and, um, and, and, and that will, you know, but so they, that, that robot, might be piloted underwater, but it might be piloted um, from somebody in an office building half a world away. And, um, but I, I do think that we will start to see some some automation. Just and a lot of it's just a function of the sheer cost of putting people to sea. Um, it's very very expensive. You're talking about 
like in the case of the oil rigs, helicopter transport, things like that. They're, they're very, very expensive. So is space flight. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they have some things in common, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so going back to what you said earlier, actually, the uh, what you're doing in the oil industry and underwater uh, really does help you prepare for and move into the space environment quite well yeah. and, and quite thoroughly, right? Yeah. Inner space and outer space, right? Um, is one riskier than the other, or you just have to to understand the risk of each and manage the risk of each? Yeah, I think they they just have their different their different risks and challenges. Um, I, from a technical standpoint, I I think subsea is harder in many respects um, because of the variability of conditions. So you you have currents, you have zero to one hundred percent visibility, um, and uh, in and in space, you know the only variance you really have is temperature and light and. So it's and things are just much more calculable. So, it, um, and we can we can run wireless. So, I think it's it's uh, uh, they're just different different challenges. But we actually we cut our teeth cutting our teeth in subsea. Sort of we started in the hardest domain I think there is, um, and so I think there's the technology can even shine better in the in, in a space environment. Um. Probably the last question uh, coming in is from Melinda in Boston, and she says um, lots of people want to travel to Mars, and Mr. Musk says he's building this giant rocket that's going to take a lot of people to Mars. So it seems to me that going to Mars is still a labor-intensive effort by whoever's running the transportation system, which is what I'll call it, rather than just a rocket launch. Do you see applications for your software and robotics in the actual transportation of people to Mars? And then I, I guess when they get to Mars, there's going to be something already pre-positioned there, but I, I would imagine then the robots are going to be involved in construction more than the people. I'm not clear about that, but at least in terms of getting people from Earth to Mars, is there room for your product? So, um, I mean, that's a good question. So, so yeah, yeah, and Elon Musk has sort of been up front with this, that there'll be um, several years' worth of robotic at work to be done ahead of any significant, um, you know, uh, colonization there. And so, yes, yeah, so there'll be a lot of robots that will be using there um, kind of prepping for for people to go there, and as well as helping them once they're there, and, and relative to transport, um, yeah, absolutely. I think you know, ro- using robots to do, um, in, you know, routine like to do inspections. If you have to fabric, help to fabricate, you know, uh, you know, if if a parts needed, and you know, there'll, there'll be three D printers on board to fabricate parts, and, and there's robotic. Um, one of the programs we're working for is. is Related to that, so um, yeah, I think absolutely there'll be technology and robotic technology that will be on those transport vehicles. Are you a Star Trek fan, by way? You know, I, I, it's been it's been some time. I, I used to be in college, uh, the, the um, but it's it's been quite some time since I've, well, I've watched well, it. Well, the reason I'm asking is remember the Starship Voyager had a holographic doctor to take care of the crew. Yeah. Are, are we anything close to something like that being uh, the cruise doctor on the way to Mars? Yeah, I, I, I doubtful. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that's how, how it's going to start. Yeah. That, that's a long ways off still. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a great concept. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we are coming up on the end. What What have we missed that you would like us to know about your company and your plans and and what you're doing, or what have we forgotten to ask you about, the, or how do you want to summarize or give us uh, take-home points? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I, I think it's been a great conversation. I um, really appreciate, you know, having had the opportunity to talk with you today and, and to your listeners. Um, I think it's, it's just we're, we're at an exciting time right now, I think. Um, and, 
you know, seeing kind of the the attention and the effort, the investment um, that's coming into the space sector is, is is really exciting. And I think we're we're just at the at the start of a of a of a new space age. And I, I think it's um, to bring um, industry and innovation um, and and that ex- have that excitement is is, is a it's, it's a great time. For people that are space enthusiasts to 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 to, um, to to get to not only just to follow it, but I mean, I think even to get involved. You know, there's so much interest even with in our youth and space, and um, I think it's it's a great place to be focused, and I'm excited to be part of it. Does your company have a newsletter or anything that people can sign up for and, and follow yeah. your developments? Yeah, so if you just go to our website at olisrobotics.com, you'll see a newsletter, and there's a, there's a sign-up uh, right there that, that you can, um, you'll see on, off the homepage that you can sign up for our newsletter. Okay. Uh, well, we're, we'll follow you. I will certainly be signing up for it, and um, I hope we can talk again down the road and see how you're doing with the lunar lander arm and some of the other things you're talking about. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners, that's it. Uh, Hopefully we're uh, up and running for open lines on Sunday. Again, check the website to make sure that's happening. Everybody have a great, safe weekend. And keep looking up, as we like to say. And goodbye from Don, David, and the Space Show.